Hello and welcome to IntrepidTimes.com. This is Nathan Thomas interviewing Katya Kanyazova, author of Shanghai Old Town, Topography of a Phantom City. After living in Shanghai for 10 years and discovering much about the history and culture of this city, Katya recently relocated to her home Bologna, where she's working on her second book about the Russian immigrant population who moved to Shanghai at the start of the 20th century. We begin by speaking about what it's like for Katya living in Bologna and yet writing about the now distant city of Shanghai. When we conducted the interview, I was at my home in Shanghai's French concession, and due to the inevitable nature of the Chinese internet, there are some occasional glitches and interruptions with the recording. But if you persevere, Katya shares a lot of wonderful stories and insights into a rich and fascinating city. Which is well worth the listen. So we begin by asking Katya to talk briefly about her home in Bologna before moving on to a discussion of Shanghai. Bologna, it's been what? It's been、um, almost two months now. I was like a new person. It's a very pretty city. It's very graceful. It's like you feast your eyes when you walk in the street. You know, there's this nice colonnades and arches and the play of light and shadow at, at every turn. It's really, it's really magical. It's、uh, amazing how quickly you get used to living by, by beauty. You know, <laughs> just begin to just kind of zip right through it with your eyes down, just on the way to get somewhere. Would you consider Shanghai to be a, a beautiful city in the way that somewhere like Bologna or Florence could be? Of course, Shanghai is a beautiful city. It's It also has a lot of things that, for example, old medieval towns cannot have. Like, for example, Shanghai's historic downtown, the international settlement, the former international settlement, and the French concession. They were they're the planned neighborhoods. They have ample space for trees, and and this, this is a really important part. Also, you know. Concession is very pretty. It's not getting redeveloped massively anytime soon. So it's it's got this it's got this accumulated value, very nice and lived-in neighborhood. So I spent ten years in Shanghai, and I thoroughly loved it. Bologna is is different in the sense that it's, it's a very old city. It's it's God from the fourth century BC. So they didn't leave any space for 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 anything. It's very built up. When you see a Uh, when you meet a,、um, when you come across a street with trees, you would mark it. Oh, that's a street with 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 like with, with two lines of trees. You know, <laughs> gotta come back here. So it's a special rarity here. You say it's strange to be,、uh, I, I guess, disconnected from Shanghai, the city you spent ten years living in and writing to it from. What、well, must feel like a totally different world.、Uh, Do you feel like you're reflecting on like a different different reality or, or something completely disconnected? Absolutely, and for me, it's it's both very sobering and humbling. The fact that Italians don't care about China, really, you know, they don't know anything about it. When you tell like someone like I do, people in, in my school what I do, what I used to do,、uh, and they're like, "Oh, China, interesting." You know, there、uh, there was a sushi restaurant down the street that I really liked. So <laughs> I. I like it. I don't even correct anyone. It's I find it really cool that there's you know the area of knowledge that you can be passionate about, but be prepared for the fact that that somebody is absolutely you know doesn't care about.、It. So in this way, is is great. And in the in the university is is very sophisticated and and pleasant and mature. So that's it, it's been a it's been a feast, you know.
do you think it changes how you write or the content of what you write versus, versus when you are actually living here in the thick of the mm, city? For me, um, I'm still doing the same. The, I'm still doing the same thing I was doing. For example, I run this Russian language architecture series. Every Tuesday, we publish an article with pictures, some featuring some building in Shanghai or a landmark or a street. That's and Russian language. Yeah, this is this is in Russian. I I actually never thought of doing that, but a, a friend. There's this resource that's the most the most massive, the most popular resource about China. Uh, sort of a what's it called? A consolidated blog. The the where where several authors write what they want and kind of self-edit. And uh, a friend proposed for me to start doing that, and I, using my, my old um, sort of old research uh, projects that never came to fruition, like an audio map of Shanghai, for example. So I had write-ups of many, many landmarks already ready, so I just started transposing them, translating them, and adapting them for the Russian audience and it, it's been great success because it turns out that there's not there isn't many there isn't much information in in Russian about Shanghai that's not just general tourism in the data. There's a real interest in in the work you do in the history of Shanghai among the the Russian community. Yeah, yeah, and that that was a surprise, a very pleasant for me. So I'm, I'm plowing this field. <laughs> that's that's one thing. So no, it's not hard to plug into your work from a totally different place. But for the first two weeks, I was so enjoying a different environment, different light, different different like duration of the day that it's been. I was afraid and thinking just how much of your identity comes from what you do. And when you're pulled out of that environment, you're suddenly pretty you know, pretty young and new to everything once again. <laughs> once again. <laughs> that's that's the exciting part, yeah. I guess. Exciting but slightly scary because you start thinking, Oh God, I'm ten years like it was never there, you know, I'm <laughs> but no. It all comes back. So you you've discovered a real audience of people reading your work in Russian and but the majority of your work has been in English, yeah. hasn't it? That's true. Yeah. And who who's the audience for that? Is it uh, people like me, expats who live in Shanghai, is it people back at home, is it architecture experts, uh, all of the above? Yeah, there's, there's mostly there are people like you, people like us who've spent some years in Shanghai, fell in love with it, want to know more, have a certain interest in architecture history, you know. Um, then there's, a, there's an interesting group of people who have family connections to China before 1949, like their parents and grandparents grew up here and then those people come back to Shanghai to revisit the places of their memory or of, of their family legends basically. So I get a lot of communication with people like this in English and people go to uh, come to research their Russian roots, you know, so that's when this is when I step in and help them locate their old family houses and, and you know, tell them everything I know about their neighborhoods. So that's that's been a very interesting type of communication. I meet a lot, you know, this type of sort of culture tourist, you know, people who come to China, but they've been to a lot of other places in the world. So they are interested in differences and they're interested in how in political situation in China and in the news, in the current news. So I 
when I give tours, I get a lot, you know, I get to introduce China via Shanghai a lot. Sure. So, so you gave tours of the, the Shanghai, what, what areas? French concession or Old Town? I could give a tour about, of, of any area in, in Shanghai, and I did, but I focused my, my two areas of interest of historic inquiry in Shanghai are the old city, the old Chinese city, like the foreigners called it back in the day, and the French concession with the angle, with the Russian angle. Like French concession is a place of life and activity of Russian immigrants. So these two are my, my two fields of inquiry. Uh, I'm speaking to you from uh, the corner of Wanping Lu and Huai Hai Lu. I don't know if you oh, know yeah. it. And it my, yeah. my neighbor happens to be Russian. <laughs> they are sort of repopulating Shanghai, but it's a totally different generation. They are totally disconnected from this uh, diaspora that I'm studying. A totally different story from the one that you're writing right now. Right? Yeah, yeah. For the benefit of a, you know, a, a New Zealander who doesn't happen to know that much about the history of Russians in Shanghai, would you mind sort of sketching the broader, the broader strokes of the yeah. area that your book is focusing on? Yeah, so the, the history of the Russian immigration spans about 30 years, we can say. So basically, first Russians, first massive migration to Shanghai started right after 1917. That was the Bolshevik Revolution back in Russia that overthrew the Tsarist regime and then was followed by three years of civil war. So people, those who didn't go to Europe and those who couldn't stay for some reason, like they own property or they were of noble origin or they were with the white army fighting the reds, they all, a big part of people trickled down to China through its north border. Through Harbin. Yeah. At, at first, the biggest, the, the, the major uh, settlement was in Harbin. There was this very functional East China Railway. And in fact, 1920s was really their golden era because they stopped sending money back to back to Moscow, basically, and, and started living off the off the huge income of running the railway. So 1920s, and then the Japanese invasion of the north of China drove drove the community further south, and so that's how they by the 30s, by the late 30s, they all consolidated in in Shanghai. And there were about over 25,000 former Russian citizens, stateless Russians, uh, in Shanghai, up to 30,000. So it was a very big slice of foreign population of the mainly French concession, a residential area that they pretty much transformed. This is the, this is the this is the sort of the argument that I that that I make the most. The argument that I make the most is that they've. They've transformed its face from from a residential sort of bourgeois sort of a laid back place where you go to sleep after ten because there's nothing in the street. It became this you know area with a huge service industry, places of entertainment and music and cinemas and bars and restaurants. So that's that's their input into the life of Shanghai. So it was the, the, the so-called white Russians who fled first from the Bolsheviks and then from the Japanese who ended up in Shanghai and brought life, this vibrant nightlife in the service industry to the French concession, or the, which would have been the French concession. It wouldn't have been former then, would it? At the time, yeah, this was, this was governed by the French. But when you talk about numbers, the French were not very, very, very represented. They were occupied in all the you know administrative positions 
but you didn't really meet them in the streets. They were living in all the in all the fanciful and villas. But in general, the most numerous Western face in in Shanghai, in central Shanghai, that was these were the Russian people. So you'd go to the French concession of Shanghai and hear mostly Russian spoken on the streets. Yeah, that's right. This was this was the impression that many travelers no, noticed and wrote about in their impressions of, like, let's say, 1937 Shanghai. They say, oh, you just go to Avenue Joffre. Now it's Huahai Road. And all you hear is, is the Russian, Russian parlance. <laughs> that's fascinating. And what evidence of that would still be... Around the corner on Avenue Jean Free today, are there buildings that still stand? Or yeah, there are there are plenty of buildings. I'm I'm still in the process of identifying all the apartment houses and house blocks that were actually built by Russian architects. But even those that weren't built by the Russians, they were thoroughly inhabited by the Russians. There's a great collection, pretty much available online, of um, resident lists and old maps from before 1949 that just show that pretty much every shop that lined uh, Huahai Road from uh, pretty much on the strip between uh, Shanxi Road and all the way to Chongqing Road, so that's four big blocks, almost every store was run by Russians. Wow. Yeah. What kind of sources have you been able to find? Because it seems like you've there's a lot of great stuff online. I remember reading that you sent that you found in Shanghai Library, which is just around the corner from me, a key that helped you decipher some of the old maps of the city. And, and you mentioned before the information online, and I guess you've been relying on a lot of diaries and journals of travelers to the city back in the 30s. Yeah, that's right. So... Uh, Russian language resources are plentiful and because maybe because modern Russians are really prone to digitize everything and put it online, let's put it this way. So there's sure. a lot of literature that you can read really quickly. So it's all in Russian. These are memoirs of former immigrants. And I've read a lot of them. And then I bought some of the books that were published early and haven't been digitized. So it's a, it, it's a great body of... Of, of literature, and the best part of it is that um, Russian memoirs are very different from memoirs left by, let's say, former, like British or Swedish or German citizens who lived in in Shanghai. In the sense that Russians were very rarely they were so so privileged as to live in a in a mansion with a cook, with a boy, with a with the opportunity to go uh, to move around Shanghai in a car. So they were not insulated in the same way as many of the many of the Westerners were, and so they saw Shanghai from all its sides. Like some Russians were uh, worked at, as as coolies, and some were homeless um, students, <laughs> some were. Like a, and some were teaching dance in in rich homes. So all of these people have very interesting new angle on Shanghai too. So they are much less insulated from from the local life than the pampered uh, French and British. Yeah, Russians were right in in the middle of it. They were renting their, their rooms and houses alongside the Chinese residents. That said, Russians never really integrated into the Chinese side of Shanghai. They, they never had any desire to. They always felt that this was a temporary stay, so that it lasted for more than one generation. This is something that they could not have foreseen. So they, they, they made efforts to integrate into the French life. They were very friendly with the French consul and, and you know, the 
it made sense for them to do that. But Chinese language, the well, Shanghainese dialect, very few of them learned and very few of them, you know, got really deeply involved with China. Sure. Did you ever make any attempts to learn the Shanghai Shanghai dialect? Yeah, well, the Shanghai dialect was spoken really widely. For Russians, the biggest challenge was actually to learn English first, because those coming from the Russian, yeah, coming from the Russian Empire, people of slightly noble, people of better origin could could speak some French, but French was not in use. You know, the the English was heard everywhere. <laughs> so you you mentioned this other thing about Shanghai Library helpful. This is true. Shanghai Library has some great maps. They were very helpful for me in the other area of my research. The first one that I handled is this um, Chinese city, the old city. So I found a, um, a like a property map from from 1933 that maps the maps the old town not as um like it's not uh, streets and actual buildings, but it's actually landlords and who who owns them and so key to that map was stored absolutely separately and actually found it online by chance and then i realized that these two are are together they are to be to be researched together <laughs> and so then i this was very helpful for me you could kind of tell what clan what family has the biggest foothold and what neighborhood you know those kinds of things is there a real sense of the separation between the foreigners' history of Shanghai, the, the Russians and the French concession, for example, and the Chinese history? And in one of your articles, I saw you wrote that a particular area could be referred to as kind of, you know, tongue-in-cheek as the Chinese Shanghai. Well, yeah, absolutely. Not only back in the day before the concessions were abolished, Shanghai was governed separately by three entities. One was the Chinese uh, municipality and the other, the other two were, were foreign. There was an international consul governing the international settlement and then the French consul governing the French concession. So, uh, of course, Chinese residents were dominant absolutely everywhere. But the Chinese city of Shanghai, for example, there's, you know, if, if Westerners ever went there, this was for amusement um, purpose and to shop for antiques and to go see see the the tea house on the lake so in many ways and I, I found some men uh, by the by the end of the 19th century some of the Chinese city kind of prided themselves on never stepping outside of this of the walled city, like never leaving through the gate. So yes, there were of course, examples of extreme, extreme insularity and tradition <laughs> pretty late. Sure. So apart from the story of the foreigners and the, the concessions and the, the foreign immigrants, are there particular regions in which Shanghai and Chinese Shanghai is unique among cities in China from the perspective of the architecture and the stories which you've been focusing on for your first book, for example? Yeah, yeah. For me, this is this is a very, very special place and it de deserves a much better fate than awaits it. <laughs> because, for example, this Shanghai is a, is a cosmopolitan city. Shanghai is a mix of East and West, has been so widely publicized that even... Even Shanghainese people have adopted the, basically subscribed to the story that, that Shanghai only has 150 years of history. But it's just not so. There was a very viable, very, very lively, 
pretty wealthy merchant town, and that was partially bound by the former city wall, the, 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 the outline of the old town today. I just found that there's, there, 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 there are many, I found that there are many relics there, there are many streets that still trace the old pattern of the, of the water channel. This place is, is, just has a lot of keys to the history of Shanghai before the foreign um, arrival in the, in the middle 19th century. And so I found that this is unfair that this is this the former Chinese city is being pushed to the sidelines and, and actually being obliterated right now um, in favor of you know of a story that is more legible and, and easier to you know easier to understand, which is you know mix of East and West, uh, the city that rose out of collaboration of, of the Western world with with uh, China. So the Chinese city is. Back in the day, uh, for example, the century, it did not have a status of a, like ancient capital, like Suzhou, or it was not a planned city with like Hangzhou or um, Nanjing. But it was there, it was good, it was rich, and there was a reason why it was chosen to become a treaty port. You know, it was very obvious to everyone who visited it that this is a city with great future. You know, sure. And you, the concern is that that core history, that Chinese history, which predated this foreign story, is being erased is, or has been deliberately forgotten? Yeah, it's been deliberately forgotten. Uh, the history has been condensed to this very brief and entertaining story that is being told via the, like this preservation and marketing of the UUN garden and the shopping area around it, you know, sort of this presentable old Shanghai. The funny thing is that, for example, the tea house on the lake is also pretty much the creation of foreign imagination because it took first, um, I think it was in 1853 when an American writer visited the old city and walked through its maze of streets and then came came across this uh, tea house he recognized it as a pattern on this on the willow pattern teaware that he had at home and so then after him everybody picked up the metaphor and started saying that this is a marvelous place and it's very special and it's been on our willow uh, pattern plates and so willow pattern plates are actually chinoiserie this is you know this is um this is English designs, basically. It's, it's sort of China-inflected design. It only evokes China, but it's not based on, on any real. Um, so it's interesting how that story got picked up, and, and it's you know now you can see how the zigzag bridge leading to the leading to the tea house is always crowded with people trying to, trying to touch the old Shanghai. You know? I can visualize the the bridge you're speaking of. So that was kind of created or became famous as the result of the reflected imagination of foreigners and what they considered to be Shanghai that wasn't even authentically Chinese in any way. Yeah, it, it was authentically Chinese, but it was not a special landmark because when you look at, for example, gazetteers and guidebooks to Shanghai published before the foreign um, arrival, to Shanghai, they, they they did not single out this particular spot as as like as anything scenic. They had other spots to talk about. They talked about temples. They talked about the you know the uh, major institutions. Um, so no, this this little merchant, this little mercantile area with a little 
sort of isle of rest and respite in the center of the lake was not a was not a landmark. You mentioned um, in, in a couple of your your articles that I researched before our conversation um, a building called the an ancestry building on Wutong Road, which is near the Yuyuan yeah. Gardens, but doesn't seem to have its fame. Would you mind talking briefly about that? Yeah, finding that building was really one of those things that kept me going and, and really kept me uh, kept me inspired about about reading more about old um, old Shanghai, old city, because the building is is tightly connected with the Yuyuan Garden, and that was actually the resident part. What what remains of a sprawling, very opulent residence of the government official that lived there and built UUN on a on a property next to his. So what is left of that property of Pan Yunduan, that's the name of official, is basically the ancestral hall. It's one of the buildings that were on the territory that we use for, for prayer. It's it's like a it's like a house church, you know? And that and that added layer of fascinating history is that it became Shanghai's first Catholic church in 1640, when the original family that owned it was in was in decline. In 1640, did you say? So, wow. Yeah. So by that's what that that's like a hundred years after it's built, uh, the family sells it to well the, the the family sold it to Shanghai Catholics, and so together with visiting Jesuits, mostly Italian and and some some Portuguese, they converted it to a Catholic church. So architecturally, right now it has this it's a mix. It, it's a traditional Chinese building, but it also has later ornaments in in European style, and even has the mark of the Society of Jesus. On you know, and some of the like embedded into some of the ornaments, so it's a it's a multi-layered piece of history sitting there. Plus, it has this extra patina of being used in the 20th century as a gym for a primary school that used to store. So it's a it's finding fi finding that building was absolutely fascinating. We actually. I was on one of my sort of a photo excursions when you just walk around the streets and seeing what in, what interesting things you can find. So just um, snuck in there pretty much behind the guard's door, uh, in there behind the guard's back and found this fantastic dusted building with basketballs on the floor and this old pillars supporting him, the huge... Uh, sort of a vaulted roof, and then there's the signs of of uh, Society of Jesus on the beam. So an absolutely strange experience. Wow, that sounds amazing. And what's the use of the building today? So currently the building is on the territory of our Citizens Activities Center. And so it's, it's, it's actually returned to, well, not returned, but it's, it's become a tourist destination but on very very limited times and some days of the year they have completely repainted everything and this very crude and monotonous looking brown paint and so people are allowed to go in and read a brief history of you know of the official Pan Yunduan who built the Yuyuan Garden so I actually it's it's a quite anti-climax I don't think that this is a this is a great use of the building and especially I really don't like how it gotten 
repainted just so that to look clean, <laughs> you know. It's it's strange how uh, I mean it's always fascinating how the buildings end up with uh, um, Jing'an Temple being used as a plastics factory during the Cultural Revolution. And I went the other day to see uh, the Ohel Synagogue on Shanxi Belu, which I think you've yeah. written about yeah. in the past. Yeah. And that I didn't get to go in. Um, no, I, the no, guards were a bit uh, cautious. It's just in the car park of um, an like a government a government office building. Yeah. It's- Belongs to the Ministry of Education, so they just have that building because it's part of their compound. So you can never tour it. Very, very limited times it was ever open for for visitors. And it's just this beautiful, very old-looking, like sort of stone building standing yeah. in this modern concrete car park. Yeah. There are yeah in 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 Shanghai in general. What I've always found very very hard to convey people here in Italy, for example. There's a completely different attitude to the relics, to antiquity, to architectural heritage. It's just, it's just, people here are always amazed when you tell them that, well, actually, the heritage is getting raised block by block, or that it's not valued, or or, or that it's getting altered, you know, and, and it's 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 a totally different different relationship with physical. Um, antiquities in China and in, in, in Europe, for example. Are you at all optimistic about the future of Shanghai in terms of the preservation of these stories, these buildings? No, I'm not. I'm not. I, um, I'm actually very, I'm very pessimistic about the future of Shanghai. I was more focused on actual buildings. You know, they are, they are something very obvious that you see, you know, there's this old villa and there's many families live in it. So it's, it's, it's all intriguing and exotic. But with years, I, I started to, to be much more concerned about communities and actual people that inhabit buildings for generations, people, you know, connections and and the neighborhoods. And so very often in Shanghai, even when the buildings are preserved, it's shell, it's only this, this outer surface, but the people are evicted, the neighborhood is broken up, the community is not there, you know. So I think in this sense, Shanghai is changing and not for the best, not even to mention that the, the, the widespread of actual architecture is, is, is going full on. But also a lot of Shanghainese are being removed from the downtown and relocated to, to the suburbs. And that's a huge setback for them, for example. They've been generationally working to be in the center. You know, If you talk to any one of those people, they would say how their grandparents migrated from the countryside to the fringes of Shanghai and then worked their way to be in the in the downtown, and now they're thrown back out. So that's a, you know, a two generations' work is is out the window. Do you find this um, that some of the like the people, for example, who you described who've been forcibly relocated to the suburbs after working for two generations to get into the center? I imagine you would have encountered other families whose lives have been you know, completely turned upside down as a result of the you know ever interesting political situation in China, have you found they've often been quite open with their stories, eager to, to talk to you about it? Um, my facility with Chinese is somewhat limited, and there's been really great uh, sort of sociological research already done. on. So I'm not the one who's, who's actually in the field. For example, there are this great, you know, there's this great 
a book called Shanghai Gone. That's a real tour de force. That's a, um, this is the person, uh, Qin Shao, she's a professor. She tracked down the, the whole dynamics and the destiny of people who used to live in Xinjiangji. And these are, yeah, these are really, these are heartbreaking stories. Some people keep coming back to their old houses and seeing that they've been turned into a restaurant. Or a Starbucks or something, yeah. Yeah, and they keep asking, well, then can I take back my house? Because evidently it hasn't been demolished. <laughs> so, yeah, so oh also, of that course, a lot, of people, a lot of people die before they can see any any turn for the best and actually for them we kind of know right Shintiji is not going back into the hands of the private owners that it was in so um what else there's been yeah there's been uh, a french filmmaker sylvie levy she made a, a documentary of, she was pretty much living with a family who were in the process of of uh, being evicted and compensated and relocated to the suburb so the in general of course the story has two sides in many cases people people live in very very constrained and miserable housing conditions and they're excited demolition news and they make plans for the and then you know this this all works works out well for them in many cases though you know losing your foothold in the center of shanghai it's a, it means that your commute to your work is now taking your more than an hour it, it means that you are just pretty much locked out of life of the city and you lose all your connections with your neighbors. So I, I used to, and I still do, walk through a neighborhood that's in the process of demolition. I would sometimes meet people who, you know, they just see this, they just see a foreigner in me and then they, they just want to quickly get down to business. Like there's no human rights in China. You know? <laughs> so people want to talk political because they don't have, yeah. And they can talk about this in Chinese, right? So, so, so well, they can talk with, with their neighbors. Things, demolition relocation-wise, things have changed somewhat for the best because there's a lot more awareness of it. There's a lot more news. Internet comes where people vent their grievances. And so the compensations are a little bit better now. And basically, a person resisting demolition, he used to be... Um, ostracized by his own neighbors because neighbors would say, what are you like against progress or why are you slowing down the, the, the process? You know, now it's, it's seen as a kind of martyrdom. So it's, things are a little bit better in Shanghai. That said, overall, this is all a very nasty process and, you know, there's no, there's no recourse for if you don't like something, you just got to have to live with it. I mean, it's, it's like the when the hutongs were and, and indeed still are being demolished and cleared in Beijing. So many foreigners, I, I don't know if locals were able to, but so many foreigners wrote about it. And I've spoken to many Chinese people who are aware of it and have a strong opinion, pro or con, that issue. Peter Hessler wrote very movingly about it. So it's great to hear that from people like you and um, Rob Schmitz, who wrote Street of Eternal Happiness recently, yeah. are really yeah. you know writing the story of, of Shanghai in, in that vein. Yeah, so I'm um, being not a sort of, I, I leave it to these authors who have much better capacity for this human-oriented research. Uh, I, of course, did talk with many people, and, and I was very always very pleased, especially in the, the old town. You would meet families who, whose connection with their place actually goes back to the 19th century and even even before that. 
So these would be the ones who would be really passionate about their places and they would, of course, not be happy to leave them because they, they, they are deeply, deeply rooted there and they like the, 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 beauty, the beauties of the houses and the, you know, the, their qualities as places of memory and their family connection. But I haven't really written human stories per se because, because it's, I sort of chose to focus on bringing to life and creating narratives of um, historic buildings that are in, 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 in the Chinese city. And this interest led you to create your first book, Shanghai Old Town, Topography of a Phantom City, and we'll provide a link to that with this interview. Could you talk a little bit about that and how you came to create it? The initial idea for the project was to make a sort of an art book with focusing mainly on photography using analog cameras and film, so very strange-looking photos with some captions about the, about the provenance of the buildings that are photographed. But eventually this, the, the caption making, the historic um, excited me so much that the captions grew into chapters and then I had to, then I had to be a little bit completionist and I wanted to not just feature some streets, but actually write a story of every street of interest. And so that uh, grew into a very unwieldy, really huge project, basically mapping every street in the old city, um, sort of systematically walking its length and looking at every house on, seeing if there's any, if there's anything uh, uh, interesting survive. So this way I made a lot of, you know, discovered in quotation marks, discovered a lot of old buildings. Uh, and then using Chinese sources and Chinese maps, try to, you know, try to, in, try to visualize like and what was the spirit of the street and what's what's interesting so uh the first volume and it was published in the end of 2015 that's um features the area that actually was outside the wall between the wall and the river and that's the area that is now almost completely wiped out so although i, th I thought that i was writing something like a walking guide you know go go down this lane, check out this building, it turned into more of a uh, sort of an epitaph to the neighborhood. And when I was researching it and exploring it and photographing it, it was already on the way out. People were being, you know, the houses were being torn down. So that volume is out. And then I'm, I'm finishing the second volume, the one that actually deals with the intramural, the area within the city wall uh, the actual walled city. Gosh, I, I think China should come with a warning to all writers. Like, beware what you write about probably won't exist tomorrow. It's yeah, there are areas that, that change a little bit From less, the time of research to the time of publication, the parts of the city. It was Tess Johnston who started to actually. Uh, create books in English about historic neighborhoods in Shanghai and it, it's a really good thing that she managed to photograph and describe uh, the street that became this elevated road called Chongqing South Road so that was a very it was a very fine street lined with really really elegant mansions and when she was there in the 1990s they were already being pulverized and in order to widen the road so 
you know, you can never make um, statements in in Shanghai that so and so building is here and it's used as so and so because very likely the the use will change and and the building might go, of course. Of course. And how do people get their hands yeah, on your books? Yeah, this book, book is on Amazon and, USA. And sure it's on Amazon Europe. It's also in Garden Books. It was your first and one, it's in a foreign Amazon. languages bookstore on Fuja Road. And actually, Yishou Bai Gallery in in Tianzifang in in uh, Taikanglu. So it's and online. Too. Great. So for those of us not in Shanghai, uh, they can get it online. That concludes our interview. Thank you very much for listening. For more interviews with other great writers and writers who travel, see intrepidtimes.com and follow the link below to check out Katya's book, Shanghai Old Town Topography of a Phantom City. Thank you very much. <laughs>